Let's open with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to freely meet together and look into your word. We ask that you bless this class and ask that your Holy Spirit guide us as we look into your covenantal relationships with men and help us learn what you would have us to learn tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first uh, lesson we had, we basically spent time looking at definitions and developing concepts. We talked about how the this class is taking a biblical theological approach to the using the theme of covenant. I pointed out that uh, Tom Schreiner's book here was uh, the inspiration for this class, and uh, that's where I got the title, Covenant and God's Purpose for the World. Uh, this is a short study in biblical theology, so that's why we wanted to talk about that in that first lesson. We also talked about uh, the word covenant, described it in various fashions, saw how it was used in the scriptures, both covenants among men and then specifically divine covenants. And then we closed that first session with a definition uh, that we thought captured most of the thoughts that we had developed and most of the examples that we saw in Scripture. So the definition of a covenant is a chosen personal relationship with promises and obligations made between two parties under solemn oath. Now, even though divine covenants are initiated by God, they are still reciprocal in nature with two parties involved in the obligations and in the oath. And so that definition applies not only to covenants among men, but the divine covenants. Our focus, of course, in this class is to look at the divine covenants in Scripture, the major ones, starting in the Garden of Eden, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, David, and then finally the new covenant. We talked about how in biblical theology, one of the presuppositions is that the Bible is a coherent, unified whole. It's one coherent story from beginning to end, from the creation to the new creation. And the other presupposition of biblical theology is that Jesus Christ is the heart of that story. And we talked about that in our first lesson also. Last week, which was the second week of our classes, we focused on the covenant of creation or the Adamic covenant. And we talked about how there is indeed good reason to see a covenant uh, at creation. And so let me just review a couple of bullet points from last week. As I said, we, we talked about the way we define a covenant, the way that uh, the word is used in Scripture, and how all of the properties of a covenant are found in the creation account, uh, even though the word covenant is not used in the first three chapters of Genesis. One thing I would point out, though, that we didn't mention last week, and that is in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about God creating, it uses the name God, 
which in the Hebrew is Elohim. In chapter 2, you'll, you'll, uh, beginning in verse 3, we actually have a retelling of the story of creation with the focus being on mankind and God's relationship with man. And what we didn't point out is that beginning in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 or verse 4, whenever, if you look in your, in your Bibles, whenever God is talked about as, as Lord in lowercase caps, which is the name Yahweh, which is his covenant name. That's his personal covenant name. And so you see a shift from God Elohim in Genesis chapter 1 to the Lord God Yahweh in chapter 2, 3, or 4 and following. That To me, that's another indication that there is a covenantal relationship taking place here. Adam and Eve... As you will recall from the story, even if you weren't here last week, were made in God's image to rule the world on his behalf. We looked at the garden, which may have been a little new to some of you, but we looked at the garden as a type that foreshadows the later tabernacle and temple as the special place of God's presence. Remember we talked about how Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground and then placed in the garden. He was not created in the garden. He was placed in the garden. The garden is not Eden. The garden is in Eden. And the garden was the special place where God walked and talked and communed with Adam and Eve. It's a special place of His presence. The words used for uh, when Adam and Eve were told to take care of and uh, work and care for the... Uh, Garden, those Hebrew words are the same words used and given to the priests in Leviticus on how they should uh, work and guard and serve the uh, temples and the tabernacle. So the same, same words are used there. So there's a lot of neat stuff here uh, with seeing the garden as a type of the Holy of Holies, for example. That's the theme we could look at through the scriptures, but we're looking at the theme of covenant. We also saw that the fall corrupted mankind and creation, yet man retains God's image. We talked about that last week. And we saw that in Genesis 3.15, when God is uh, is uh, recounting the, the results of the fall and cursing the serpent and cursing the ground and describing the misery that Adam and Eve are now going to have to undergo, he made a promise saying he was going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and therein promised a redeemer. We talked about how the original creation serves to point us to the future where we will have a new creation. God inaugurated history with creation. It was pronounced very good. It will culminate in a new creation. And he's going to take us from point A to point B by way of covenant. I came up with a schematic to try and use to plot our progress through these classes. And we talked about this a little bit last time. We have the original creation. We talked about the 
Adamic covenant or the covenant of creation, the fall, which took us to the bottom. And then in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise given. Now, where I got this schematic, I thought I'd, I mentioned this last time, but I want to say it again. This schematic came from looking at these words in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 7. And let's just read that. This covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by further steps, until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. So that's where I got the idea of steps. So we're going to use this graphic to monitor ourselves as we move through. Today, we're going to take the first step after the fall and look at the covenant with Noah. Questions? Comments? The Noahic Covenant. I thought I'd just put up the verses. If you want to, you can turn to Genesis 6 and then put a thumb in Genesis 9. Uh, but these are the verses where the words are used. The words covenant are used. Genesis 6, 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and and you shall come into the ark. So this is actually before the flood. But I want to point out something that we talked about the first week, and it's not critical, but we talked about how when your Bible says establish a covenant, it's translating the Hebrew Hakim Berit. That's an E. Hakim Berit. And that is usually using the word establish in the sense of to confirm or affirm, or specifically the word establish can mean to make firm something that already exists. And when your Bible uses the word, when your Bible translates it, made a covenant, when God makes a covenant or made a covenant, we talked about this, makes a covenant, uh, the, the Hebrew is karat barit. And here, karat, which literally means to cut a covenant, and we see that dramatically demonstrated in Genesis 15 with the covenant of Abraham where they cut the animals and lay them across from each other. But the emphasis in Karat uh, here, as opposed to Hakim, is this is the uh, the inauguration, the initiation idea. I can't spell it, but anyway. Inauguration or initiation. And so this leads you to think of something new. This leads you to think of something that already exists. Now, uh, Tom Schreiner, for example, says that's not a hard and fast rule. It's generally true, but it's not a hard and fast rule. There are exceptions. Others, like uh, Steve Wellam and Peter Gentry, and their very good book that I referenced, God's Kingdom and Through God's Covenant, says if you do your exegesis properly, this holds true in every example. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you might, but that's it's not pres- it's not presented that way. In other words, 
when God initiates marriage in, in Genesis uh, 2, uh, he doesn't use the word covenant. However, we find it later in Scripture called a covenant in Psalms and uh, Malachi. But they're used in, it's used in a negative sense, talking about someone who forsook their wife of their youth, their covenant wife. And it uses the word covenant there. So that's another instance of where you can have a covenant, even though the word covenant is not used. But to uh, to make a distinction between Hakim and Karat, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, that might be an application rather than uh, something derived from the text. But anyway, what I wanted to point out, the reason for saying that is that in Genesis 6, I will establish my covenant, Hakimbarit. I will confirm or affirm my covenant. Genesis 9-8, I will establish my covenant. I will affirm or confirm or make firm my covenant. So the point here is there is at least an allusion to the fact that this is something that already exists. And what would that be? The covenant of creation. That's exactly right. And we're going to see how the covenant of creation or at creation dovetails with the the Noahic covenant and ties them together, links them together. And so when when we read the Bible and we look at these covenants separately in our minds, we're missing something. And what this study is hopefully going to do is help us see how all of these covenants are linked. They're they're giving us a progression. They're telling us the story of redemption from creation to the new creation. And God does that by way of covenant. We talked about the fact that covenant is not the only theme you could do to do that. You could pick other themes and trace through the scriptures. Uh, but we're doing it with the word covenant. I have one quick question. Sure. Does that, does that mean that yes. They use Karat, Barit, and other cases. I'm just pointing out that here with Noah, it wasn't used. Okay. When we get to Abraham, it is used. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, I'm just pointing out that in this instance, that was noticeable to me that that was not used. We'll see it used, of course, with Abraham. Okay? Now, the background for this covenant is set by the narrative. And so, we want to look at what transpired from the fall to the time of Noah just briefly as background. Although beset by misery resulting from the fall... The promise of Genesis 3.15 gave Adam and Eve hope. And the reason I say that is because after God gave the promise, Adam named his wife Eve, for she was now to be the mother of mankind. The promise told Adam two things. The human race is going to continue and you're not going to die immediately. And that gave him hope. By God's grace, even though he had already aligned himself with Satan and moved into the domain of darkness, God delayed his physical death so that mankind might continue. To me, that gave him hope. Hope that someday someone would come, a future Redeemer, who would make things right. When Eve conceived her firstborn, she acknowledged Yahweh. 
using his covenant name. Now we know that Cain was the first, was her firstborn. But he showed that he was the offspring of the serpent. Slaying the offspring of the woman, Abel. And we talked about how the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, what composed those two seeds. Some might say the seed of the woman is all mankind and the seed of the serpent is just Satan and his minions or his demons or the fallen angels. But scripture doesn't allow us to do that because in, because we were told specifically that uh, Cain was the offspring of the evil one. In 1 John 3.12 it says, We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. We see in John chapter 8, verse 44, that uh, when Jesus is talking to the antagonistic Judeans, John 8, 44, he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Matthew 13, 38 is another place where we read these words. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So when when God said he's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, he's talking about putting enmity in such a way that it divides mankind. So with Cain, the world began to unravel a bit. He was a murderer. And then his seed, a descendant of Cain, who I'm going to call bad seed because there's two Lamechs involved real close together here. In chapter 4, it talks about Lamech, who is Cain's descendant. I'm calling him the bad seed because his brutality and arrogance showed that sin was indeed gaining the upper hand. The roll call of death in Genesis 5 verified that sin and death had come to reign. If you'll remember Genesis 5, it says, So-and-so begat so-and-so, lived so many years, and he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, he lived so many years, and he died. And he died. And he died. All through Genesis chapter 5. But, when Noah was born, his father Lamech, This is a different Lamech. That's just why I'm mentioning that. And I'm calling him the good seed. When Noah was born, his father, Lamech, prophesied this. Out of the ground that Yahweh cursed, this one shall bring us relief. From the toil of our hands and from the painful toil of our hands and from the cursed ground. Now, This is obviously a reference to Genesis 3, 14, 15, 16, uh, where God pronounced the curse and cursed the ground and spoke of a Redeemer. Now, Lamech evidently says maybe Noah is that one who will give us rest and undo what's happened. Now, some people will say, no, you're reading too much into this. 
Lamech was just happy he had a son to help him till the ground. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. He's referring to the curse in Genesis 3.15 and the promise. And hoped it would be Noah. Now Noah was not the redeemer. Noah was not the promised redeemer. But Noah was the one through whom the redeemer would still yet come. You might remember that, uh, well I'll point out that when Noah was born, over a thousand years had gone by since the curse in Genesis 3.15. But Adam lived 930 years. (laughs) He hadn't been dead that long when Noah was born. So there's plenty of reason people were aware of The fall, the curse, the reason the ground is cursed, the reason they're not in the garden anymore, the reason it's so hard to till the ground, the reason women suffer great pain in childbirth, the reason families aren't aren't what they are meant to be because of strife between husbands and wives. That's been explained. Yet, a Redeemer was promised. And that's who good Lamech thought Noah might be. Sin had come to reign, and God sent a cataclysmic flood to destroy his enemies and vindicate his holiness. After the flood came a new beginning, akin to a new creation. And here's some links between the two that I think make sense. The birds, creeping things, and animals again begin to propagate on the earth. Where did we first see that? In the creation account. Birds, creeping things, animals. Adam and Eve in the garden were enjoined to be fruitful and multiply. This same thing, this same thing was issued anew with Noah in Genesis 1, 9 and verse 7. To be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve were given dominion over the world. God reinstated this with Noah, albeit now in a fallen world. In Genesis 9-2. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. Fallen Noah and mankind retained God's image. Despite being corrupt in sin. The covenant with Noah could be called the covenant of preservation. It was instituted to preserve the human race. That was signaled by God's protection of Noah and his family. In it, God confirmed the covenant of creation with creation. And if you have your Bibles, let's just look at uh, Genesis chapter 8, verses 21, 22, and then a little bit in chapter 9. If somebody has it, would you read uh, Genesis chapter 8, 21 and 22? Okay, great. Even though, it says, the intentions of man's heart continues to be evil, I will never again strike down every creature on the earth. In fact, while the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day and night shall continue. Till when? Till the consummation. You don't have to worry about an extinction event like an asteroid or alien invasions 
or anything, or World War III. Even if there is a World War III, mankind will continue, day and night will continue, the seasons will continue, because this is God's promise to Noah, I am going to preserve the earth and mankind. There's going to come a fire. <laughs> That's right. Uh, also, the covenant is for all generations, and it's called everlasting, and it's universal in character. In other words, even though we're going to see God's purpose is focused in Abraham and the nation Israel, His ultimate purpose for mankind is universal in character. And we mustn't forget that. Finally, God set his bow in the clouds as a sign of his covenant with the earth. Now, we all know what a rainbow is. So when we read that, we get a picture of the rainbow. But when God says, I will set my bow in the cloud, a bow is a weapon of war. A bow was perhaps the premier weapon of war at this time. God says, I will set my bow in the cloud. What's he saying? I'm laying down my weapons of destruction. And when the ancients heard him say, I set my bow in the cloud, when he said bow, that's what they were thinking of as a weapon. Not a rainbow. They didn't know what that was. God showed them a rainbow. But it's a bow that speaks to the fact that he has laid down his weapons of war. I already went over that point. Got ahead of myself. But as Don mentioned, Peter sees three cataclysmic events. And uh, let's see, that's, what is that? First Peter Do you know, Don? In it, he says, he ends by saying, the earth is being kept for the day of judgment. It's going to be destroyed by fire. But in that passage, he sees three events. Creation, the flood, and the final judgment. So whether the fire is literal or is merely speaking of divine judgment, It's not coming till God has accomplished his purposes of redemption. He will not wipe out the human race again, even though human nature hasn't changed, it's fallen. The earth will continue and endure until Christ returns. There it is, 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7. But here's an interesting point. Since the basic flaw in man wasn't remedied by the flood... The the scholars will refer to the fact that human government was established here in this covenant with Noah. So look, if you will, at uh, Genesis 9-6, and we'll read the passage that that this comes from. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This does two things. It tells us that even in our fallen nature, we retain his image, at least to a degree. But here, they take this verse and then extrapolate that to say human government was endorsed. I think what they're getting at is, here for the first time, 
God has said, you will execute my judgment on my, on my behalf for anyone who kills another man. This also applies to animals. If an animal kills a man, kill the animal. If a man kills a man, kill the man. But you're going to do it. And so they, they take this as saying this was the basis for which man was given a right of judgment at least in this matter, and from a standpoint of governing society, they see this as the seed for that. So, the of yes. <laughs> now, I wouldn't say the culprit is, is, is God himself, but, but, uh, but you, you see what it says. And the reason why he said it, because man is what? Made in God's image. And so to take the life of a man is to take the life of a being that's in God's image. And that's why the sentence was death, at least at this point in time. So some of you might uh, disagree with the fact that this actually establishes human government, but that's what you'll see in the literature, and that's where they got it and what they're thinking, I guess. The covenant to preserve the world wasn't grounded on human godliness or goodness. That's obvious. <laughs> right. Instead, the continuity of the world is due to the mercy of God. Now, you might say that the Noahic covenant was not redemptive in and of itself. But it is necessary for the purposes of God. It links the covenant of creation with God's plan of redemption, which we will see in Abraham, and God's purposes and God's redemption are achieved in a creation context. The salvation promised will be realized in this world because God is going to preserve it until he brings the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the ages and the new heavens and the new earth. Here's some more similarities between Adam and Noah. Noah, like Adam, was in a garden. And like Adam, he sinned in his garden. He planted a vineyard. And he got drunk. And he lay naked in his tent. Now Ham somehow dishonored Noah in his nakedness. And for that, Ham's son Canaan was cursed for his actions. It's not explained what specifically Ham's sin was. And you can imagine the speculations. All the way from homosexual activity to who knows what. But I think some of this needs to be explained in the context of what it is to honor your father and what it is to shame your father. And the other question is, why curse Canaan, Ham's son? Ham's the one who did it. But it would not be unusual for the original readers to see that the actions of Ham has consequences for his descendants. And that's borne out in the scriptures, especially in Canaan. The people of Canaan, the nation of Canaan, they are the curse of God. The curse on Canaan shows the continuing conflict 
between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, in Noah calling Yahweh, when Shem was born, Noah said, called him the Yahweh, the God of Shem. He's giving God, he's giving Yahweh the name, the God of Shem. He's identifying Shem as the line through which the seed of the woman will continue and ultimately the Redeemer will come. And again, this is a distinction drawn between the ungodly and the godly. Those who will be cursed and those who will be blessed. So, is there a new beginning? The new family, that is Noah's, had the same problem as the old family, Adam's. Yet the promise of redemption is applied in Shem. As time went by, human beings again reached a crisis point, you'll remember. They built the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. But you remember the story of the Tower at Babel. And that was specifically the reason. We don't want to be scattered. We want to stay together. We want to build a temple that reaches the heavens. We want to make a name for ourselves. So, So here we have it. God has promised to preserve the world and sustain the human race. But the prospects for humanity don't don't look very good right now. They look kind of dim at the Tower of Babel. So in conclusion, let me just say that the covenant with Noah is a covenant of preservation. In a number of ways, it affirms the creation covenant, which is why we looked at the word Hekim Barit as opposed to cutting a covenant. Despite the depth of human wickedness, human beings are still made in the image of God. The bow in the clouds, the sign of the covenant, testifies that God has laid down his weapons of war and he will preserve the world until redemption is accomplished. So if I go back to the schematic, we've now taken our first step up from the fall with the covenant with Noah. Any comments, questions, or discussion? Jim? Uh, I give the fact that uh, that in the language given to Noah, it was implied that something preceded this. I think the logical assumption is he's, what preceded it was the covenant of creation. Uh, we talked about how it's obvious that the main stipulations for a covenant were met with Adam and Eve. There were two parties. There was uh, blessings given. There was a curse given. There was a penalty given. And all those things are covenantal in nature. And then the fact that his covenant name was used was, was just icing on the cake that I didn't think of last week. But th- those are the reasons. Now, the, the reasons that people argue against the covenant of creation is two things. One, the word covenant is not there. Second reason is Adam and Eve are in a unique position. This was prior to sin, prior to the fall. So what need was there of a covenant? Well, I think both of those can be answered. 
Hosea 6, 7 is a, thanks Ron, is a textual reference to the fact that Adam broke the covenant. I'm glad you guys remember. I've deleted those earlier slides off of this, so I can't go back to it. Jeremiah 31 talks about God saying, I made a covenant with the day and the night, and I just as soon break my covenant with the day and night as I would break my covenant with you here. Jeremiah 33. So there are, there are some good evidences for it. Uh, and the fact that this was prior to the fall, uh, I think speaks to the fact that when God created the cosmos and the earth and the creatures and man, he was committing himself. There was a commitment to the creation. And even though drastic things happened with the fall, he's going to bring us to a new creation. So the fact that there's going to be a new creation, I think, is pointed to by the original creation, and those are all in a covenant context. So even though it was before the fall, I don't think that's the reason to say it was not a covenant. One other thing is that when we get to the covenant with David, the descriptions of the covenant with David don't use the word covenant. Later scripture does, like Psalm 68, I think, calls it a covenant. But in the institution of it, the word covenant is not used. So you can't say since the word covenant is not there, it's not a covenant. Doesn't hold. Doesn't hold. Anybody else? Come on, somebody's got some, somebody's got some questions. Yes, ma'am. Mhm. I think it's spiritual. Oh, the question is: we referred to. Cain as being of the of the devil or of the seed of the serpent, and she asks, "Is that literal?" Well, it's obvious it's not literal in the sense of procreated, uh, but but it's literal in terms of a spiritual condition. And here's why I say that: when man sinned, he joined Satan. So when God speaks of enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, he's talking about something new because there's no enmity here. Adam and Eve are already in alliance with Satan. What he's going to do is that as mankind multiplies, he's going to pull out of that domain of darkness a godly seed, which is the seed of the woman. They're both spiritual. His his preeminence and the fact that he was the pinnacle of God's creation and the fact that he it says he was created in God's image and his likeness that were that that uh those pi- pictures uh speak of sonship uh when Seth when Seth was born uh the scriptures say that Seth was created in Adam's image and in Adam's likeness the same thing that was used of Adam with respect to God. So uh, the very fact of being in crea- uh, created in God's image has with it a picture of sonship. And even though Adam sinned, he's still a representative head of the human race. And uh, I think what you're suggesting is, did Adam ever get pulled out of the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of the sun? <laughs> 
Right. We talked about the fact that he didn't abandon them. He covered them with animal skins and sent them forth. Uh, That's all the text says. It speaks of sacrifice for sin and covering requiring sacrifice. It does. No, it just says it in passing. Explicit. It's not explicit. It's I think it's some implicit because think of it this way. Who's writing this? Why is Moses writing Genesis? I know that, but I, from <laughs> yes, you're right. Right. What I was trying to get to, though, and, that, and that's right, Don. But what I was trying to get at was. Here they, here the Israelites are in the, in the wilderness and, and Moses is writing the Torah. He's trying to, the, the, the question of the Israelites, I think, was something like this. How did things get this way? What, what is the deal here? They've just come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Moses, what's the deal? And so the purpose of Genesis is to answer that question. And also the purpose of Genesis is to start off saying, God didn't make it this way. What God made was good. What God made was very good. Man made it this way. That's that's what he's getting at. That's the story. The story is not so much to answer questions that we might have that require speculation, is to say, we're here because of sin. And the only way, and even though the animal skins, are, there's no specific reference made to sacrifice, in the wilderness, there were sacrifices being made for sin, according to the Torah. Well, when they read Genesis, I think their mind would say, that's where it started. That's my speculation. Right. It's an issue of the heart. That's right, Don. Like we talked about last week, the sin of Adam and Eve was not eating the fruit of the tree. The sin of Adam and Eve was an issue of the heart. And it was, it was them, it was them deciding to be autonomous. And if you ask where did that, if they're, if they're created upright, holy, Righteous, where did that come from? I don't know. But somehow, that welled up in their hearts, and they sinned. Okay, so it's almost 8.30. We've taken the first step up from the bottom, and next week we will get into the Abrahamic covenant. So thank you all very much.